You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to another edition of Radio MMT. How are you, Anne? Hello, Kevin. I'm all right. The question is, how are you? Good to see you back in the saddle. Yeah, well, I wasn't here at the last one because of a, a, a slight bout of COVID. <gasps> I think it should be called fucking COVID. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm pretty well vaccinated. I got, I got my first and my second bout really early, like within a month of each other, um, and they lasted for exactly five days. And then mm-hmm. this one, which is a number of years later, mm-hmm. I got again, and it goes for exactly five days. So I can confirm for me, COVID <laughs> lasts for five days. Good to have you back. And hello to our listener who this episode is Chris. Chris from Helsinki. Amazing. Chris from <laughs> Finland. So we'll get on to Chris's letter later in the hour. But to start with, looming large on the event horizon for modern monetary theory is a film that's coming to Australia and there are a few opportunities to get connected with this film. Next Wednesday, 6.30 on the 28th of February, film screening will be hosted by the Sustainable Living Festival in Melbourne. Okay. So you can go to their website and get tickets. Now, this film you're talking about, would the film be called Finding the Money? Is this the one oh, you're referring to? Oh, that is the to? one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did I not mention that? You forgot to mention his name. It's called Finding the Money. Um, uh, it's a movie documentary uh, that follows Professor Stephanie Kelton around discussing MMT with all and sundry. Um, uh, but she's coming out with the movie to uh, attend. Uh, that is correct. Yeah. So on Wednesday the 28th of February, the Q&A is with the director, Maren Poitras, who we will be hearing from more later in the hour here. The other opportunity to see this film will be on March the 8th at 7pm uh, at Trades Hall in Carlton. And that screening will be followed by a QA and a with Stephanie Kelton, who is The Economist. And, and others? Uh, Emma Dawson is emceeing that program. Emma so Dawson, okay. She's from Per Capita, which right. is a left-leaning think tank in Australia. Yeah, we, we, we kind of like Emma Dawson. Uh, we've talked about her before and sometimes we go, oh, she's getting there, she's getting there. <laughs> and, and she probably thinks the same about us, but you know. <laughs> and then... On the following day after that screening, there is a conversation between Stephanie Kelton and journalist Natasha Mitchell, who is the host of the ABC Big Ideas program. And that once again is hosted by the Sustainable Festival. 
Yes, and and uh, the reason that we're kind of excited about this movie is because a, a large part of our our, our mission is mm-hmm. to spread uh, the word, spread the word <laughs> to to um, to get people to understand how the economy works uh, mm. and. It's often described that uh, MMT, modern monetary theory, is the best analytical tool for uh, understanding how the economy works and is quite confronting to a lot of the orthodoxy. It turns a lot of stuff on its head, which mm. is why where the resistance comes from. And if enough people, if enough people understood how our economy worked, there would be a paradigm shift and things would change. And things would change for the better because we would we would understand that we can achieve a lot of the progressive policies that we're told we can't afford. Um, Yeah, it's like one piece of the puzzle for how you might be able to address climate change or how you might be able to address the housing crisis, you know, and it's that piece of the puzzle which is about how do you find the money. Yes, and it certainly arms uh, people against the rhetoric uh, at the moment which says, oh, you know, we'd like to do this but we can't afford it. Oh, we'd Mm. like to do that but we can't afford it. And you sort of go, well, actually you can. It's kind of like getting your COVID injection, Kevin. You get inoculated against these false ideas. (laughs) Against the nonsense (laughs) that's thrown at us. And I'm really looking forward to the film because we haven't seen it and I'm really uh, interested to see the mainstream economists that she interviewed and she put to them the MMT position. And they apparently had their answers, but... Hey, now, look, uh, if there's any listeners out there that knows anybody of significance, like politicians, um, mm. drag them along. Just drag drag them along. If you need help dragging, call me up and, and I'll, I'll help you drag. I've got ratchet straps and all sorts of stuff. People of significance need to see this. Because and if you would like to go voluntarily and you are on a fixed income, we do have a couple of tickets to give away. Oh, yeah. So you can contact us at radiommt at gmail.com. Yep. So... We can listen to a little taster of the movie itself. Right. And then we'll we'll head to a conversation that you and I had with the director of the film, Maren Poitras. We played the first half of that conversation in our last episode. And this is the second half of our conversation. And one thing that really interested me about uh, Maren talking about making this film was she reminded me of just how important stories are. Yeah. And she's a storyteller. And... You know, you only have to look at how much damage we're doing to ourselves because we're telling ourselves the wrong story about money. And so we end up believing that money is a scarce resource, really. I mean, it's clean air and clean water. That's yeah. <laughs> that a scarce resource. Money, money is a is a human invention. It, we created the monster. We can mm. we can turn it into whatever we like. You know. And I kind of think these false stories. I'm not sure that they're entirely accidental. I mean, for sure they're filtered through the power structures in our economy. And so what gets told about money does seem to suit vested interests. Mm, indeed, <laughs> funny about that. Mm, yes. Shall we have a listen to the teaser for the film? Let's go. So much of the public discourse, it's like we're going through life with one eye shut and one eye open, and we're only getting half the picture. And then somebody like me comes in and says, well, let's make sure we see the full picture. New worries today over the exploding federal debt. The federal government is We're broke. bankrupting our country. We want to lift this crushing burden of debt off our, our children, children and grandchildren. The government debt is not a burden on anyone. The national debt is exactly the opposite of what the orthodox story tells us. An unconventional economic theory is gaining some traction. Modern monetary theory, MMT. And one of its leading proponents is Professor Stephanie Kelton. One of the most influential and indeed controversial economists in America today. In conventional wisdom, surpluses are good. 
Deficits are bad. We're borrowing trillions of dollars from China. Does the government have to borrow dollars? No, of course not. The federal government is where the money comes from. When a fringe economic theory goes mainstream, you better pay attention. You could take the national debt clock that scares everyone and just rename it the US dollar savings clock. And I think everybody would have a very different kind of reaction. The true story of money is not the story that I've been told. I do live in my MMT bubble, so I forget that most people don't think that we have to worry about the national debt. Yeah, I mean, I think we're just yet to see, you know, what will happen. I think we're all open to, you know, whether this might break into the mainstream conversation that we're having this year in an election year in the U.S. And Good timing. Yeah, so, you know, it's all about timing with a little bit of luck. We're a little bit past our debt ceiling scare that has been in the news for quite a bit in the U.S., you know, as you know, we're kind of the only country in the world with their <laughs> debt ceiling limit that we self-impose. Yes. Um, and so we get that in the news, and that could be a good hook for us um, to say, hey, maybe we're actually thinking about the debt the wrong way around. Um, but we are still having, you know, every week right now, we're having the risks of the government shutting down, the federal government shutting down over budget wrangling in, in our Congress. And that comes down to spending and taxing mm. and all the things we're going to be talking about in an election year you know, around what our priorities are. Can we afford to tackle climate change? Can we afford to deal with inequality? But we maybe need a different lens instead of the first question always being, oh, well, how are you going to pay for it? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, where are you going to find the money? That's usually the question. And slowly, I think that's starting to shift. But it certainly has not entered the mainstream enough to understand the, the ramifications of how MMT defines what the national debt is, what the implications are, and then what the real limits are. It sounds like you've come into MMT uh, with your own personal journey uh, and you've had to do your research and your homework um, before you've been able to launch into this project. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. yeah. You know, my, my goal is, as, as a person, you know, on the planet, you know, I guess I care more about, you know, the climate and seeing our societies become more sustainable for humans and for every other species on the planet. And that's my main imperative. And so if that means having to understand how the financial system and monetary system works and how to make films, then, then that's part of it. Mm. But I think I think I am an, an activist first. And so I don't want to be confused about how, how all of this works. So yeah, it was, I had to do a lot of reading, but it was, it was frustrating kind of reading the back and forth debates even because it's like, why don't these people just get on the phone and talk to each other. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, they'll just like write articles back and forth against each other and they're clearly talking past each other. Yeah, modern monetary theory, I feel like, is the paradigmatic example of going upstream when you're looking at the poly crisis, housing, health, climate, you name it. Mm. You know, I'm really interested in this subject. I had started from climate and from ecological economics and then I finally found MMT. So trying to understand these big picture issues you know, what's causing climate change and then how can we address uh, such a systemic issue at its roots, you know, with systemic solutions? What are what do we need to do at the scale and the speed necessary to really address the climate crisis? Mm. And that's, you know, that's what brought me to the story of MMT and to money and economics itself. And, you know, when I discovered this kind of underdog group of economists that were seemingly up against quite an uphill battle where there was a lot of conflict there. There's a lot of controversy where 
the established mainstream school of economics is saying, no, don't listen to this group of people. You know, they're clearly crazy. They're clearly wrong. And yet there was something in there that, that just kind of hooked me, right? And mm. something they were saying that made me want to dig further and try to figure out if they were right or wrong. You know, I was pretty skeptical in the beginning. You know, I was like, I want to make sure I kind of, un you know, understand what this is or figure out myself if I think it's crazy mm. or not. Um, and, you know, I think we have this ingrained idea of what money is or that it's something valuable, something you can hold on to, something like gold. Mm. And yet, you know, when you dig a little further, it has a very different nature that we seemingly never talk about and is even glossed over by economists, you know, the field that you would think is is responsible for understanding money. Mm. And so that was really what hooked me is the conflict, you know, at the core of every good story is a good conflict. Um, and so you have this kind of underdog David and Goliath story in the film, you know, there's kind of this story arc of, of MMT as a group, you know, they've gone from being ignored to being ridiculed and laughed at to being fought. And now the question is, you know, are they going to win? Um, and I think that is still an open question. Well, Kevin, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the aim anyway. So long as they're, you know, like if they're ignoring you, it's a bit discouraging yeah. sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we're still at the ignoring phase. Mm -hmm. um, so Marin was mentioning there this thing called the debt ceiling, which the United States has. And I just love it because it's one of those wonderfully ridiculous policies that only a neoliberal could love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this debt ceiling, this this goes to the nub of the the conflict, the mm. disagreement between yes. orthodoxy and progressive economists. Right. So these orthodox, neoclassical, neoliberal economists, what they want in a debt ceiling, well, what it is actually, is it's what they call a legislative mechanism. And what it does is it restricts the total amount that a federal government can spend. And it does that by limiting the size of the debt. And this is what causes so much trouble in the US where they reach that limit. And in fact, several countries do have debt limitations, but only Denmark and the United States have a debt ceiling that is set at an absolute amount rather than a percentage of the GDP. And what's so ridiculous about this is if you're the currency issuer, you can't run out of the currency, so you don't need to put a limit on how much you're spending. And if you're the currency issuer and your country has unmet needs along with unused resources that could meet those needs, for example, say your communities are falling apart and you've got lots of unemployed people, you could just use your currency to employ those people and get things done. And of course, you don't need a debt ceiling because you don't have to worry about paying back the debt if you are the currency issuer. So I was looking up debt ceilings and in my trusty Wikipedia, Kevin, mm -hmm. <laughs> I couldn't believe this. It was truly enlightening because this is what I read, that between 2007 and 2013, Australia had a debt ceiling. 2007 to 2013, that's, that's the, um, the Labor years. Yeah. So yeah. it was the Rudd government who introduced the debt ceiling and they set it at $75 billion with a B dollars. And the wonderful thing about debt ceilings, and this is what America is finding at the moment, is that the federal government does not really control the total amount of spending that, that they're going to have to do. And that's because anything that happens in the year, for example, 
uh, say back in January 2020, the government had no idea that it was about to spend $60 billion on, on the COVID lockdowns. Yeah, I mean, like, like to say that um, a, a government uh, has a, a limit on what it can spend, we describe currency as, as a score mm. in, in the economy. Um, it, it, it's it's like they're saying, oh, well, we're not going to give any more scores now. You know, like it's has like to, stopping the ball game in the middle of the game. <laughs> just just going, oh, look, we've, we've <laughs> run we out, run of, we've run out of numbers. Yeah, you haven't run out of numbers. <laughs> and the other thing, like you say, is how can you predict what's going to be needed? You we, can't. We, occasionally, a war pops up, and yes. all of a sudden, a, a government will yes. sp- spend as much as it needs so to. So, a budget's always a rough guesstimate. But what they actually spend, they never know. So, of course, in two thousand and nine, they had to increase the debt ceiling to two hundred billion from that seventy-five billion. And that was the GFC. Two thousand eleven, it's up to two fifty billion. Two thousand and twelve, it's up to three hundred billion. And then finally in 2013, Joe Hockey realised they were about to reach their debt limit. So, Hang on, so you're talking about Joe Hockey now because mm, you're saying we 2013. had... 2013. 2013 was when the new coalition government had under Tony Abbott... just got in. Just got in, yep. Yep. And so with the support of the Australian Greens, yeah. the Abbott government repealed the debt ceiling over the opposition of the Australian Labor Party, <laughs> yeah, and I and I believe there's a similar there's a similar thing happening in the uh, in the US where mm. uh, some of the strongest uh, supporters of the, of the debt ceiling and making it even harder, uh, the Democrats. Yeah, it's like the um, I'll use the term loosely left wing parties uh, try to build confidence by putting these limits on well, on their spending. They, they are playing straight into the neoliberal handbook. Yes. Like it, well, I think the mistake they're making is they're trying to be good economic managers, but the problem is they're managing the economy like it's a household. Yeah. When really they should be managing the economy as though they are the currency issuer. Now, this this thing about a debt ceiling, um, it, this goes to the heart of the the main difference between progressive economists and neoclassical economists, and, and which Stephanie Kelton describes in her book, the deficit myth, is what is a deficit, mm. and neoclassical uh, orthodox economists regard a deficit as a debt that the government needs to recoup and mm-hmm. pay back. And the, the, the understanding is that that's done through taxation. Mm-hmm. Uh, what progressive economists understand, and we can give you the evidence for this, is that a government deficit is a private sector surplus. And in particular, government deficits fund profits in the private sector. Mm. So another way to think of government deficits is that it's the government's investment into the economy. Yeah, it's <laughs> the government's deficit is the private sector saving. Yes. Uh, and so if these neoclassical economists do their sums and figure mm. out how to pay back the so-called debt, mm. well, that's easily done. Just grab all the profit from the private sector and give it back to <laughs> give it back to the government. It's essentially like Australia has a, a, a national debt, which is the the total of all the deficits run year after year, mm. of around a trillion dollars, mm-hmm. and that means there's around a trillion dollars of profit in the private sector. Right. And if you want to balance your books the way that the neoclassical economists want to do it, they balance their books by saying that all the money that goes out of the government sector has to come back into the government sector. And when that's done, the books are balanced. Mm. Well, of course, if that money is used for profits, then you have to pull all the profits and all the savings out of the, <laughs> the private sector, return it to the government, and your books are balanced, but your economy's just gone, imagine, gone belly up. Imagine where we would be if we still had that $75 billion debt ceiling. Oh. <laughs> 
What that would mean is we would have stopped paying out on NDIS, we would have stopped paying for aged care, we would have stopped unemployment benefits, we would have stopped paying for education and healthcare. I was watching that um, ABC doco on the uh, coalition prime minister's um, nemesis. Nemesis, and uh, Howard gave advice to to Morrison mm. uh, that um, uh, when you're faced with a crisis like COVID ideology goes out the door, right? Mm. And what that reveals is ideology goes out the door and the true machinations of your economy (laughs) kick in. That's quite a revealing comment. And and so what that says is that their mismanagement of the economy is driven by an irrational ideology. (laughs) It's, it's, it's It's a complete misunderstanding of how the economy works. If they believe that... The deficit needs to be repaid. This is what they refer to as the, the debt and deficit disaster for our grandchildren, etc. They believe yes. that the books can only be balanced by returning mm-hmm. all of that government money in the private sector back to the to the government. Mm. Then, then we're all screwed. But the, the, the proper way to balance the books is to understand where the money's gone. If the money's gone from the government sector into the private sector, that's right. So if you want a, an accounting way of zeroing it out, you don't return it all. You just realise that it's gone from mm. here to there. That's why Stephanie says it's like they're looking at half the picture. They're only looking at one side of the balance sheet, which is the spending side, but they're not looking at who's receiving the money. So much of the public discourse, it's like we're going through life with one eye shut and one eye open, and we're only getting half the picture. And then somebody like me comes in and says, well, let's make sure we see the full picture. So really, all these pollies, they need to go off and see this film, Kevin. Yeah, they don't have to take our word for it. It's go not see even, the film. It's not even complicated. <laughs> it's not even complicated. No. They, 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 all they talk about is the government deficit, and mm. they never mention the private, private sector, sector savings. S- s- surplus. Okay. <clears throat> the other thing that Maren made a really good point about MMT was that it does take you to the root of the problem. It does clarify things. And it's like this idea of going upstream. So, for example, you might ask yourself, well, why are we having this horrendous challenge of the global warming? And, of course, most commentators that you and I would listen to, they would say, well, it's the economy, stupid. It's the way we're doing an economy which is predicated on extraction and endless growth. So then the question is, well, how do you change your economy? And you probably want to change it so that you're actually taking some notice of our biological capacities. And the only entity in the country that can mobilise resources at the speed and at the scale necessary to deal with these huge challenges and that, of course, is the federal government. Just like they did during COVID. Like there was an emergency and they responded overnight, doubled job seeker, which automatically eradicated um, a lot of the poverty in the country. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so the government, the federal government has two capacities. It has the capacity to make laws, you know, in other words, the rules saying what we can and can't do. Yep. And it has the capacity to create dollars. So, for example, if you wanted every home in Australia to have passive solar so that you're lowering your total energy use you'll use your capacity to make laws to say what are the standards to which we should be building housing particularly all the public housing that we need yep and then you will use your capacity to issue dollars to To make make it happen to make it happen yeah and so what mmt is revealing is this second capacity that the government has and the necessary capacity so it's one important part of the puzzle to understand how we're going to deal with all these crises and it's not like they don't know how to do it because they do it all the time they did it during world war 2 they did it during the gfc they did it during covid they do it with defence spending they do it all the time this is normal government procedure on how they create money and inject it into the economy it's just they don't want to admit what they're doing 
I think we need a break. I think we need to ponder on this for a bit. Uh, there was a, an album that came out uh, yesterday by a, a favourite band of mine called Fill in the Tiles, an mm. album called uh, Double Happiness. I think it's a very good album. Um, they've got a uh, release for this coming out at the Tote on the 15th of March, I think it is. But here's a little taster, Fill in the Tiles with a song called Lux. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev at 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne, Australia. Join the National Sustainability Festival in 2024 for a huge program of events this February and March. 
featuring visiting economist Stephanie Kelton in conversation about her best-selling book, The Deficit Myth, uncovering modern monetary theory and the critical role of deficit spending. Serving as chief economist on the US Senate Budget Committee and as senior economic advisor to Bernie Sanders, Stephanie is flipping our understanding of the national debt and the nature of money upside down. For the full festival program and to book online, go to sustainabilityfestival.au. The National Sustainability Festival is a 3CR supporter. Here on Radio MMT with uh, Anne and Kev. Uh, before those very important announcements, we heard from Fill in the Tiles with their song called Lux, which is Luxury Underground Home. Uh, that energised me. <laughs> They're good. Good band. Great band. Yep. So we are spending the hour listening to the second half of our conversation with Maren Poitras, who is the director of the film Finding the Money, that we're all very excited about going to see next week and on March the 8th. Uh, we could just jump straight back into our conversation with Maren. Sure, let's pick up where we left off. I did hear you say um, in an interview that you were motivated to make this documentary in order to answer the question, why isn't MMT common knowledge? That's a question I've asked myself quite often. Um, but I would like to hear why do you think MMT should be common knowledge and did you ever come to an answer to that question um, as you were making the film? Yeah, I think it was still it's still just a central question that I had making the film was trying to understand could it really be that there's this explanation of how the monetary system works that is just somehow completely overlooked by the mainstream of the field and the textbooks? Like, how can the textbooks just mm. jump over? What is money? Where does money come from? Like, those two very simple questions are not, you know, you know I went searching in quite a few textbooks from Paul Krugman to Olivier Blanchard to Gregory Mankiw. I checked all those textbooks and I was like, okay, where do they talk about money? And it's maybe a paragraph mm. that says, oh, of course, yeah, before there was money, there, were, there was a barter economy. And, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, obviously that was difficult because you can't trade what you want for exactly what someone else wants at the same time. So they just invented money to make it easier to trade and barter. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you ask anyone besides an economist, if you ask <laughs> an anthropologist, historian, sociologist, are there any examples of historically barter markets that then evolved into monetary systems, barter systems that invented money. No, like there's no example of this ever happening in history. Mm -hmm. But the economists somehow tell this as if it were just common knowledge. And it is. Today, it's incredibly ingrained in people. Like even if they're not aware of it or conscious of it, it's deep. It's deep down in the storytelling, you know, the storytelling of our culture. And that's what I think the film is also trying to do is just change that basic fundamental story we tell about money. Hopefully, hopefully your documentary will, will uh, assist with this changing of the, the narrative uh, quite effectively. Yeah. It's the story, you know, that we tell about money that all of this comes down to, I think. Mm. I tried to go interview as many mainstream economists as I could to ask them, you know, where does, where does MMT go wrong? Mm. Where in their description of how the monetary system currently operates, where are they incorrect and why? And I just could never... I never found a good critique. I never found a valid critique. You know, the only critiques I, I came across were just, oh, MMT is crazy. They say you can print infinite amounts of money and it'll never cause inflation and it'll never cause any bad consequences. And it's like, 
well, that's not what they say. So, you know, let's have a conversation about what they say mm -hmm. so we can find out if it's correct or not. You know, I just want to know <laughs> what's, what's correct. Why is it this grand mystery? And it almost feels like economists want it to be a grand mystery, almost like they're the, the priests of this mysterious religion. And it's like, don't, don't ask too many questions or like, don't upset the God of the economy. <laughs> you know, we don't really know how it works. So just don't upset it and don't ask to change it because this is the best you can get. There's no alternative. Mm. I just feel like there's so much in the mainstream ideology or the neoliberal ideology that when it comes down to it, the core of the conflict that I could find when interviewing the mainstream economists was they would, they would admit, yes, the government creates money. But then on the other hand, they would say, no, the government has to find the money through taxing or borrowing before it can spend and it could go bankrupt mm -hmm. or clearly it's borrowing too much. And they would have all these different conceptions in their mind at the same time that were contradictory. And so, you know, I think what it really came down to was just really not wanting to admit in a way where money comes from, or they never wanted to think about it too much. You know, I had one economist tell me, it was like, just don't think too hard about that. You'll lose the thread. Like, just don't go there. Oh, um, <laughs> and, and Stephanie was told that too. You know, she tells this story, her professors, just don't ask the money question. Like, just don't, like, we just don't do that in economics because you'll either be ostracized or you'll go crazy. Wow. That's an insight. But, um, but, you know, the core of the conflict comes down to what is the nature of money? Does it come from the federal government or does it come from private markets? Is it created by the private market? And so that basic question, I think mainstream economists don't want to go there too much because they really want to cite the private free market as the fundamental force of the economy and government as just an intrusion upon that natural system that would work maybe better even without government intrusion, right? So mm. always trying to minimize the role of government. And that's why I think the MMT story itself is so fundamental and so interesting in that it it shifts and replaces government as, and politics itself as this fundamental force. We simply don't have private free markets or monetary systems without first a strong government that can impose taxes and then create a monetary system. And then you can have markets. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. You know, I think this is one of the most accessible pieces of media to come out about MMT, and I hope lots of people take the opportunity to go and have a look at the screening in a room full of other people. Yeah, yeah. So um, tell us how people can hear more about the film. Yeah, I just would love to share, you know, our website is findingmoneyfilm.com. Um, and so you can go there, sign up for our email list, and then you'll be in the know about any upcoming screenings in your area. We might be adding screenings. We might be adding events. You could reach out to us about hosting a screening at your campus or a community screening. Um, we'll want to do more of those. And then, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's great to, to keep in touch. Again, like I said, there's more resources on there. Um, we're still looking for maybe just, you know, international distribution or distribution in Australia. But this is a huge step. But I just want to say, you know, Australia is, you guys are really at the forefront. You know, I'm incredibly, incredibly impressed by the organizers there and the volunteer efforts. I just can't say enough, like how appreciative I am for the people who are stepping up and volunteering so much of their time to help make this happen. So, well, you know, I can't wait to see what happens when we're 
when we're there in person. Yeah. So it's been it's been absolutely wonderful to have this chance to speak with you and we wish you all the best on the film tour through Australia and of course through other parts of the world. We're looking forward to uh, seeing you in person when the uh, film comes to Melbourne and, and around the country. So uh, we're looking forward to seeing you there, Maren. Thank you guys so much for having me. Myra made a point there that this doesn't have to be our only possible option to see the movie. If, if anyone knows uh, a group that would like to host it, I'm sure she would be open to that. Which is essentially what uh, Modern Money Lab and Stephen Hale and Gabby have done is, is just find yeah. a venue and, and try and drum up. It, it, it's a hard thing to do, drum up interest for anything. I've been involved with music festivals and it's hard enough selling tickets to something like that. It's a it's a difficult thing. If if you have any interest, you'll you'll have an interesting night. Whether you go on the on the is it the twenty eighth, the twenty eighth of February, February the state library, the state library, or March the eighth at, at the Trades, Trades Hall. Hall. Yeah. Marin mentioned uh, the barter myth in all of that, and I just wanted to say we did a whole episode on the barter myth in our episode twenty one. And that's an example of how a story can just set you on the wrong path when it comes to economics with dire consequences. It's one of the reasons we think we should have a rate of unemployment and keep people in poverty. Uh, the thing I like about barter is people say that um, the monetary system came from barter. Uh, it, it would seem logical, and there's evidence to support, that it's actually the other way around, that you can only barter if you know what something is worth and you and you can only know what something is worth if there's a monetary system in place in the first time so if you're going to start swapping things you know with without money you have to know what their value is Uh and the way you you know what their value is is if there's a a dollar value to it yes if you believe in the barter myth you're basically reverse engineering history yeah the other thing that mara mentioned that really stunned me and it really gave me this sense that you know the mainstream economists they're standing there in front of their students and they're saying do not look at the monetary system or you will be ostracized or you will be driven insane. Do, do you know what they're really saying? Is do not do not look at the monetary system or how money originated because we haven't got an answer and it's just going to be too bloody hard for us. So just avoid that one. It's like the curse, isn't it? Ah. I can just imagine this locked door with this curse on it. You'll be driven... You'll be driven mad or you'll be killed. It's just a source of endless fascination to me, the resistance by the mainstream economists to some very, what you and I think are some very simple logical ideas. For example, when the government spends, it's putting money into the economy and when it taxes, it's pulling money out of the economy. And of course, we're talking about federal government, not state or local governments. And Myron went through a few reasons about why the mainstream economists are so impervious to all this stuff. So, of course, you can be ostracised and you can ruin your career. Then that idea that you'll be driven crazy by this knowledge, you know, that's the first time I've actually had a sense of how the mainstream economists actively avoid the pain of cognitive dissonance, which they would have to face if they were to look at how money really works. Yeah, the, the, seriously, it's it's the same as flat earthers, isn't it? Mm. It's like getting a flat earther to try and understand that, that the world is Something round. Something like that. It's just too hard for their brain. And then Myron made the point that MMT is threatening the supremacy of the private market. So, Kevin, I think you and I, we're pretty comfortable with the notion that markets are dependent upon the state to exist. And then, of course, the state exists within a society and the society exists within nature and the planet. I don't have a problem with that. But mainstream economists, they react like it's some horrible, dangerous heresy. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so then there is this question that they don't want to look at, which is where does money come from? Money does come from two places. Does money come from the government? Yes, it does. Does money come from the market? Yes, it does. Mostly through banks. But the thing is, the devil's in the details on this because the money that the government issues, which it creates when it spends, that's the currency. And it never has to be paid back. And the economists will call that vertical money. And the money that comes out of the private sector... That usually comes out of when banks are lending, and that's what the economists will call horizontal money. And that money is not the currency, it's actually bank credit. So it's like a contract, but the contract is written in the currency, so it looks like dollars to you and me. So both kinds of money look like dollars. Well, money enters the economy in one of two ways. It's spent into the economy by the government or it's lent into the economy by the banks. It's Mm. spent into the economy or it's lent into the economy. And the difference is that the bank money has to be paid back. Yes. So if something is lent, it needs to be paid back. And if something is spent, it doesn't. It doesn't. It can (laughs) just sit there in the economy forever. And unfortunately, we we call it the government debt. But the the point is that, that we have a monetary system and it is slightly complex, this interaction between the different kinds of money. But I don't think it's going to drive you insane to look at it. Well, it, it can. And here's my, here goes my <laughs> okay, story. Okay, here's Kevin's so, story. So the other day I was doing a job, work as a handyman, and so I was recorking a bathroom and, uh, and I thought I'd go for lunch. And I walked into a little cafe in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I'm sitting there, I noticed that there was a guy with a, a laptop and a couple of books. And one of the books he had was uh, Graeber's 5,000 Years uh, oh, of Debt. okay. And so I've wandered over and I've gone, oh, you're reading Graeber. So this is a book about the origins of money. And but, it basically dispels the barter myth. Yeah, you know, uh, and it does say in there that there was such a thing as privately created money. But if there is private money created, eventually it gets taken over and regulated by governments. Otherwise, it, it spins out of control. Hmm. So, uh, so I said, what do you think of Graeber? And he goes, oh, it's rubbish. And I go, okay, <laughs> rightio. So, so I spoke to him. Now, as it turns out, he worked for Treasury. Uh, he worked for Treasury in Australia for the federal wow. government. Then he went to London and he was working for a lending institution over there, mm. uh, which went bust during the GFC. And, and he said that he spent 13 years researching and he has a book with 3,000 pages in it coming out. Uh, and his whole thing was that money needs to come from the private sector, that the government needs to step away from money creation, that the banks need to break their association with the government, and that money needs to be a private thing. The gold standard needs to come back, etc. We had a conversation and when I asked him some questions, he basically said, oh, look, it's just very complicated. <laughs> and what occurred to me is that when you don't have an answer, mm. it is very complicated. Mm. When you're barking up the wrong tree, when what you're saying doesn't make sense, it's very complicated. Mm. And I came to the conclusion that the poor fellow has just wasted 13 years <laughs> of his life and is going to produce a book, a 3,000-page book of nonsense. <laughs> Poor fellow. Oh, he no. seemed like a nice fella. And mm. look, we had a conversation for, would have gone for 45 minutes to an hour. It took a long lunch wow. just because I thought, look, you make an opportunity In, like this. Yes, yes. And just oh. think that was someone who was pretty up close to the whole mechanisms of money creation. I was able to speak fluent, fluently to him about everything. He tried to bamboozle me with stuff and yeah. I was able to bat it straight back yeah. to him. I was able to give him there simple scenarios, um, but he could not give me simple explanations for anything. Handyman with a bit of MMT can talk to an ex-Treasury official. Yeah, and make more sense. Now, we need to digest that with a song. And we're going to go back to Fill in the Tiles with a song called Real Estate Mastermind. (laughs) 
world, it's cold. I'm out in this world, it's hard. I work, I sleep. I go to work, I sleep. I'll settle for less, I'll settle for more. This is the time for me. I just gotta make a change and make something a bit different. It'll be good for me, they say. But I don't know about that. Fill in the Tiles with the Real Estate Mastermind. They're doing an album launch at the Tote on March the 15th. Go and check them out. They're a good band. I love that song. They're speaking to a generation who's dealing with a housing crisis. Uh, Hey, Chris from Helsinki. Who is self-studying MMT because, in his words, he feels it's very important that everyone should know how our monetary system works. Now, he was asking us a question. (laughs) Kevin, I'm going to throw this one to you. We're talking about foreign exchange stuff here, but ask the question. He said, when Russia had just invaded Ukraine, Putin said that he wanted the gas Russia was selling to be paid in rubles rather than in euros, and the EU refused to do that. And so his question is, what would have happened if they were selling in euros? What would have happened if they were selling gas in rubles? And would this have had the effect of bringing up the value of the ruble? Rightio. So uh, a disclaimer, uh, mm. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> don't, I don't know what I'm talking about, but this is my logic behind this. And, and yeah. if any feedback, please email us. So uh, Putin is saying that he wants to be paid in rubles, and it sounds like he's trying to raise rubles. But Russia issues the rubles, so why would they be demanding payment in rubles? Okay, so the answer is he's not trying to increase the supply of rubles. He's trying to increase the demand for rubles. So, so what happened uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine was lots of sanctions were put on Russia, and uh, they're trying to strangle the Russian economy and say that the ruble, you can't buy anything with rubles, um, you guys... You're screwed because uh, we're just going to shut everything That's down. That's how they put trade sanctions on, isn't it? They cut them out of the currency trading system. So then if, if you can't use rubles, then the value of rubles drops and drops and drops. And therefore, if you're in Russia and you want to import something and you're using rubles, everything gets more and more expensive mm. because people are going to say, we don't want your rubles. And they say, well, I'll have it over here twice as many, three times. And so you end up with your ruble being devalued right? because there's no demand for it because it's, it's been hexed you know, by, by <laughs> sanctions, etc. But this is me talking here. So, not okay. This is not... So, so what you do is you say, radio. well, we've got something that you want. And if you want it, you're going to have to pay in rubles. And then the people who want to buy the gas, uh, the foreign entities that want to buy the gas, 
So, well, now we need some rubles. Now we need the rubles. And so how do they get the rubles? Well, they have to open up trade with Russia. They have to sell something they, to Russia. And so it's a it's a give and take situation. So they get around the trade sanctions. Yeah. Now, that's just that's just me logicking it out. And, and there's all sorts of foreign exchange mechanisms and sometimes central banks get involved. Mm. I started reading about this um, last night. You went down night. a rabbit hole, did you? And, and then, and then my, my brain glazed over <laughs> and I went, oh, no, I can't. I, I need to do a lot more it's reading. It's a whole show, isn't like, it? Yeah, look, yeah. And it's complicated because once you start moving your currency into different regimes and you have all these entities buying and selling it and trying to alter the value of it, it gets really bloody complicated. I was reading yesterday in, in macroeconomics. It said it gets really bloody complicated. Yeah, so, so we do love getting the curly questions from our listeners. Yeah, and, and thank you, Chris, for, mm, for um, reaching out to us all the way from Finland, which is rather close to Russia, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, incidentally, if you have any input on that, because I'm sure I've said something which is incorrect, and hmm. let me know. We're all on the journey, <laughs> learning here together. We're all. We're learning. not economists. Um, we appreciate your input and we appreciate your questions. So thank you very much, Chris from Helsinki. Um, and we did uh, liaise with him on email a bit, but uh, you know, we, we try our hardest. Well, that's us done. The next Friday, we're usually here is International Women's Day, uh, but we will be back after all the screenings of Finding the Money, and hope to see you there. And we'll probably have a chat about how that all went. And International Women's Day occurs on the same day as the Trades Hall screening of Finding the Money, mm. which is being presented by Stephanie Kelton. It's and an all-women panel. All-women panel there, so it's all good, so come along. Anyway, we'll see you in the next show, whenever it might be. See you then, Kevin. Bye. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good, and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomic band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. Well, we could call the band the Permanent Income Hypothesis or the Ricardian Equivalent or Rational Expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to, like, form this band and sing it to them. And we're going we're to bring the economists in. We're going to get music. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.